0: Good morning. We're doing a series. We're looking at Peter's letter to Christians who have been displaced from their home turf by captivity and by colonization. What ended up happening when the Israelites went into captivity? They were forced from their homeland. A number of them had to move toward a different Part And many of them moved into what was then known as Asia Minor. Today, it's the central and western part of what is known as Turkey. And they became foreigners and exiles there. Um, There was also a movement when uh, about 10% of the Roman Empire was Jewish. And what ended up happening, uh, some of the Roman empires, they really wanted to colonize out west. It's like what happened in the United States when uh, we sent a bunch of people out to the central and western plains to inhabit it. And so Romans wanted to do the same thing. So a number of individuals then lived in what was then known as the Wild Wild West in Asia Minor. And it was a place where... Um, A number of Christians settled and churches were established there. The problem was that when wealth inheritance, wealth at the time, and inheritance were tied up with land. So if you are displaced from your homeland and you go to a place where you're going to settle, you leave your inheritance in the rearview mirror. You give up the land which in that time would have meant retirement. And so you had to give that up and to go to relocate and resettle. That's, it's somewhat tenuous. If you're in a position where you're thinking of, gee, retirement, I don't have much of a retirement. Uh, You know what that feels like. Uh, Not only that, but some of them, it wasn't so much land, but they were members of families. And becoming Christians, they would have been perhaps ostracized from their families. I went to the, I told, I told the story at the University of Pennsylvania, and there was a significant Jewish population at the school, about sixty percent, I think. I remember this one young woman who, uh, during her freshman year, she came to a place of understanding who Jesus was, that he was the Messiah. And so she embraced him as Messiah, as a Jew, which was something that was not very easy, I remember. And the, maybe the first or second year at the university, I was standing by a table, and it was a Jewish messianic table. What that means, there were individuals behind the table who were Jews who believed in Jesus. And I sat there with my, my hands, and this is what I observed for, I just was fascinated and This was the ongoing conversation. Uh, an individual would come to one of these individuals behind the table who believed in Jesus, although a Jew, and then somebody would come and they would say, uh, are you Jewish? And they say, yes. Do you believe in Jesus as the Messiah? Yes. I thought you said you were Jewish. I am. But you believe in Jesus as Messiah? I do. But I thought you said you were Jewish. It's just those, those things don't... Those things don't go together, and that's I've just been time after time, one after one after another. Um, so, in becoming Christian, some of these would have been written off in terms of any types of family acknowledgement. There was this one young woman who uh, became a follower of Christ, and during her freshman year. Then she went back down to her parents in Florida. They find out what she had done. Then they told her in no uncertain terms that if you don't forsake this course of action, um, we're going to be done with you. And she did not recant what ended up happening. Uh, found out that they buried her in effigy. They took that which represented her, went and to a cemetery. And and the pressure was so great that she ended up, I can't leave that. I can't leave that. She couldn't be cut off. That's what these individuals Peter is writing to. They are displaced and dispersed. The sense of a retirement, moving into some type of socioeconomic security was not possible. And Peter writes to encourage them in their identity in Christ to the living hope and the new inheritance that they have as followers of Christ, attempting to give them cause for hope in the midst of what I'm sure we can understood would have been a a situation that would have raised a bunch of hopelessness. What he says, first Peter chapter one, verses three through five, Peter writes, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It says new birth results in a living hope and a new inheritance they sacrificed by and large, Their earthly inheritance by becoming Christians and Peter draws their attention to the inheritance that's waiting. He describes this Christian inheritance using three words. It's imperishable, unspoiled, and unfading. And so this inheritance would be untouched by death. Death wouldn't take it away. Death would cause them to receive it. It would be unstained by evil. It would be something pure and it would be unimpaired by time. It's a, it's not an inheritance that you're going to burn through. If anybody here has received an inheritance, you know, a significant portion of that inheritance still might be available. Some of it might not. You burn through it. This inheritance that we're going to receive, you can't burn through it because it's eternal. It will never fade. It will be as lush and as plentiful on the millionth day as it was in the first day, never perishes. And this was especially meaningful. And when you think of a number of Jewish Christians, because their legacy in the Old Testament was the promised land. That's what they were promised, land, seed, and blessing. And over the years, this earthly inheritance was not kept For them, it ended up being sacrificed to the Assyrians and to the Babylonians and to the Greeks and to the Romans, and empire after empire after empire settled in it, populated it. It wasn't kept. Their Christian inheritance, Peter says, is far superior to their earthly inheritance and it is being kept and no one will take it away wealth measured in the in at that time not just by land but by goods cloths and gold and stuff like that jesus contrasted even that type of inheritance with the heavenly one here's what he says in luke 12 it's in your worship folder fear not little flock jesus writes for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Uh, there might be individuals who begrudgingly include somebody in an inheritance, because they have to, not God. He, he's chose gladly to give you the kingdom. That's what it says. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's true, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And it's true, what captures your mind, captures your heart, becomes your true objective. What captures your mind, captures your heart, becomes your true objective. And what Peter's trying to get them to do, what Jesus is trying to get them to do, is recognize an inheritance, trying to get them to capture in their mind an inheritance that's worth being preoccupied with. And not focusing solely on this world's inheritance, but one that is more secure. I don't care how secure your financial situation is. Solomon was an individual whose financial situation was extremely secure. Listen to what he said. These are really interesting words. If you see the poor oppressed, and this is in Ecclesiastes, the, the book that Solomon writes. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things for one official is eyed by a higher one. And over them, over them both are others higher still. What he says, it's the levels of Authority over authority after authority. So if you are chicken number one, you're going to peck chicken number two. And if you're chicken number two, you're going to peck chicken number three. And these top two chickens are officials. Now, if you are chicken eight, nine, and ten, you are going to get pecked. (laughs) And your inheritance, the things you want to hold on to, they're going to end up getting them. That's what Solomon points out. That's why those who are on the lower level, have their rights denied. And Solomon doesn't agree with it, but he says, don't be surprised. Look at whose pockets are being full. He goes on. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Listen to what he says then. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet. Whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. It's interesting, isn't it? When you hear that? It's, so the sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. He's too busy guarding from thieves and from corruption and the inheritance and the hope we have is ever living because Jesus is ever living. It's something that is not going to be subject to time or nobody's going to steal it. It's being kept. And while this inheritance exists already, it's being kept, what Jesus went to do. And he'll come back to usher those are his, who are his into this inheritance. He's coming again. And when he comes, he's not going to be a little child. He's going to be large and in charge. And he brings an inheritance with him, and that's why we believe in him now. Uh, but while this inheritance exists already, we don't have access to it yet, which means we live in between already and not yet. Do you have an inheritance? Do you have it already? Yes, you do. But do you have it in your hands? Not yet. Already? Not yet. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul in this Verse 6, Peter shifts from glorious future certainties to inglorious present realities. Their identity as Christians brings them joy and grief, both. Uh, In various kinds of trials, they've had to suffer for a little while, which gives the sense of context. Suffering doesn't go on forever. The inheritance is much longer than the suffering. But there is, there are trials and there is suffering and there's a purpose, purpose biblically. You find it in a number of different places. Genuine faith cannot exist without trials. Genuine faith cannot exist without trials. A a faith that's deeply rooted cannot exist without trials. That's what I hear with a tree. When a tree is in a place where the wind beats on it, what that tree will do, it will send down deep roots in order to anchor itself. A tree that is not buffeted by wind, will not send down deep roots. Here's what I know about you. If you're a believer in Jesus and you're encountering trials, you are driving the roots of your faith deep. You have to. You have to. It's, it's not just nice little things. Christianity doesn't become a nice thing. It becomes a necessary thing. His words don't become interesting. They become necessary. And then again, that's what trials seem to do. We, we have to drive the roots of our faith deeper into what He says. I'm not sure about you what you see when you look around at your life. Is your life what you wanted it to be? Uh, I'm looking at my retirement. Mm-hmm. That doesn't look like I wanted it to look. Look at the things that I thought I would have in terms of legacy. I'm not sure my life is what I wanted it to be at this stage. And when that's the case, what Jesus says, you know what? Diversify your investments. Say, what do you mean? Think about not your investments that are going to come to maturity in 10 years, in 20 years. Think of your investments that are going to come to maturity in 100 years, in 200 years. I saw, I was interested, there's a great picture of a hearse at a cemetery with a trailer attached to it. (laughs) (laughs) Purses usually don't connect to trailers. And you know why that is? Because you can't bring it with you. You can't bring it with you. The things Peter wants them to grab onto are the things that they're going to have with them. It's that which comes through faith in Christ, and it's something that that is being kept. Um, Suffering proves the genuineness of faith. That's what it seems to indicate. That's why sufferings are purposeful. Sufferings prove the genuineness of faith. I have a ring. It's gold. And Peter indicates here that when you're refining gold, you expose it to fire. He says, even something like this is going to finally, eventually, uh, perish. Again, it will take a lot, but this isn't as good as the living hope and new inheritance that are those who, through faith in Christ, are his sons and daughters. But um, there is, um, but there is. What happens with these things? They subject gold to. A test. And they heat it in order that when you're making gold, the dross, the impurity surfaces and you have a purer product. And what the word for test, that's what it indicates. It's something that happens to surface that which when it's skimmed away will leave a purer product. So what happens when we are exposed to difficulty? It surfaces some things that get skimmed and what you end up having is a purer faith. A faith that is rooted more deeply in what he says and less deeply in what you see. We live by faith, not by sight. And that's what struggles do. They root us in what he says because we can't put our faith in what we see. We look at the checkbook. We look at the investments. We look at the things that we are perhaps would like maybe to to be a little more, but it's just not there. And so what ends up happening, you have to focus on what he says rather than on what you see. That's what... Peter talks about, Paul talks about it as well. Look at what he says in Romans 5. says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces Endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. What it's describing, that's that's a storm. So let that represent sufferings. Sufferings. Storms twirl you around. they They are disorienting. You can't see. You, it, it's, you are basically have the ability to just keep on going. And so in the context of sufferings, what it indicates is some things end up having to be produced. Sufferings produce endurance. Endurance means to remain under. It's the inability to use what you have to get what you want. When you have what you want, then you don't need to endure. When you don't have what you want, and when you have what you don't want, then you need to endure. You need to remain. You need to remain. Sufferings promote endurance. We usually imagine that what God wants us to do is come to Him in order to figure out how to get out of a jam. And that doesn't say don't pray about getting out of a jam, but just understand There's sometimes he will not let you get out of a jam. You know why? For the same reason why gold gets tested. It'll drive your faith into what he says, not what he sees. If you're in the middle of a storm, you're not going to get a lot of security by looking around at where you are in your circumstances. And this is an opportunity to come To him and understand that there is a value to learning to remain under. This word for endure, you know what it literally means? To remain under. To remain under. So you're in a situation, a storm. You'd like to get out of it. And what God would say, I want you to trust me enough to stay in it. Because faith is tested when you're in a storm. That doesn't mean like it. Don't, don't smile. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. God doesn't look at the face. He looks at the heart. Be honest with him. I don't like this. I don't like this. But you do fulfill your purpose. Will you just give me what I need to be the person you want me to be? Endurance produces evidence. The evidence of sincere faith is the ability to remain under someplace. Isn't that interesting? What's the evidence of faith? It's the ability to remain under. That's the evidence that there's something real. Anybody can dodge and dart out from something, but true Christian faith gives the ability to remain under, and the ability to remain under provides assurance that what you have is real. This is like A whirlpool, endurance, evidence, assurance, endurance, evidence, assurance. It's what happens when you're in a storm. What do you do when you're being spun around? What do you look? And it talks about, in Romans, it talks about hope doesn't put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Here's what you do. Think about God's love. Two things, two things if you're in the middle of a storm. Two things. Two things. The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. Does Jesus know what it's like to deal with agitated feelings? Can Jesus understand what you feel like? Yes, he can. And there's something powerful to that. When you're in a situation where you are agitated, Jesus walked on water, but he felt feelings. He felt it. He felt agitation. That's what he said. My heart is agitated. And what should I say? Father, take me from this hour? No. It's for this very reason I came to this hour. The reason why Jesus came to the hour is to know what it felt like to be agitated. Why would he need to know that? So he could sympathize with you. So he could sympathize with you. It's very difficult to walk through difficult things alone. Don't walk through alone. You say, Who can I walk with? There's one who understands. Really does. Jesus. There's the sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. The sovereignty of, together. It's, you know what it's like? Well, the sovereignty of the Father. He's working out his purposes. Faith. Even, it's just gonna help your faith. A pair of binoculars. Two fields of vision. When you look at your life, and you kind of look long term, when you take binoculars, right? You look long term. When you look at, look at your life into the future. Some of us don't have a long way to look. But look, what do you see? Look at a couple lenses. You know the way binoculars work, right? Two fields of vision. They create one image. The sympathy of the Son and the sovereignty of the Father. Is there anything you're going to experience that Jesus can't understand at some point? Some of us look into the future and and see, one of the hardest things to see is exclusion. Being alienated, foreigners, exiled. That's the people to whom Peter is writing. Some of you understand what that's like? To feel separate from? Everybody else seems to be so connected and you feel disconnected. Some of you understand that? Even in the midst of a bunch of people, you feel disconnected? Does Jesus understand disconnection? In spades. Spades. The sympathy of the Son, the sovereignty of the Father. When God is going to cause all things to work together for good, he just does that. But keep both of these things in mind. The sympathy of the Son, the sovereignty of the Father, that allows endurance to become evidence, to become assurance. Um, it's a little bit difficult because what ends up happening when we're spun around, chronic hardship creates discouragement. It really gets hard to continue to put one foot in front of another because I, I know it's going to happen tomorrow. That's what it says in Hebrews 12. My son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when He rebukes you. The Lord disciplines those He loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship is discipline. God is treating you as sons. Discipline is child rearing. We've talked about this. Discipline is different than punishment. It uses the word, but the word discipline here, it's literally to be with a child. That's, it's, it's a compound word to be with and a child. And so what discipline is, is being with a child and the the focus of discipline is on future correct behavior the focus of punishment is on past incorrect behavior that's why punishment and discipline are different discipline looks to the future when it's administered properly there are painful things but the purpose of the pain is not you me, i'll show you something you know that's not it's it's about the future this is going to be painful now, but you learn that's what discipline is. And the motive is not wrath, it's love when it's real, when it's discipline. That's what this word indicates. That God disciplines us because he cares enough to. There's two things that can happen when you undergo discipline. You can make light of it. Some of you are going to understand this. Uh, you got up to a place where. You know, parents discipline, they might swat you or they might say something or, you know, anyways, you get to this place where you get a little bit older. Some of you, you know, you know exactly what I'm going to say. And so, so you do something wrong and you get hit. So what do you do? Is that all you got? <laughs> and that did not, that does not make mom or dad happy. And when you, when you do something like that, what, is, is that it? Was the mosquitoes around? <laughs> uh but, so you make light of it, and, you say, well, and so when you make light of it, you deny the hurt. Don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Some of you are going through some difficult things, and if somebody would ask you how you're doing, and you cared, to, you know, not just somebody who's just asking to somebody who really wants to know. I'm doing fine, because that's what Christians are supposed to say, right? Yeah. Because if I, if I didn't say I was fine, it, it would mean my faith was bad. So I'm going to say what I, I think you want to hear, which is, yeah, I'm fine. And it's interesting, isn't it? That doesn't show the presence of faith. It shows a lack of faith. Faith does not mean denying hurt. Don't be a fake. Don't be a hypocrite. Okay. So you hold on to hurt. But then you, you know, some of us did the other thing, which is, you know, so the thing comes and, you know, your mother takes just a little thing or just, you know, some of you have done this, just a little, you know, and you act like if it's, you know, you do the other thing, not a, well, as mosquitoes. It's like, holy smokes, get that hammer out of her hand. And so it's, it's sometimes there's either denying the hurt or there's denying the hope. It's like, oh, and so it's, it's a, it's a balance, isn't it? Not making light and denying hurt and not losing heart and denying hope. You have to walk in balance. You know what helps you walk like this? Sympathy. Jesus understands what the hurt feels like. Sovereignty, there's reasons for you to hope. Hurt, hope. Sympathy, sovereignty. Evidence. Endurance assurance. Root is getting deeper. Root is getting deeper. There was a story about um, somebody who was asked to buy somebody, his employee, to push against a rock. This didn't really happen, but it's just a story. Anyway, so this guy's pushing against this rock, and it's not going anywhere. This rock's huge. And so he's pushing against this rock, and he finally gets to the place where his rock's not moving. So I don't think I'm going to push on the rock anymore. Okay, so he stops pushing on the rock, and naturally what happens? The person who employed him comes, and you're not pushing on the rock. He said, yeah, the rock's not moving. He goes, I wasn't doing this for the rock. I was doing it for you. I want you to look at your back now. Once you look at your back, look at the muscles that have been developed now by straining against. It was never about the rock. It was about you. It's about you and what was going to be produced within the context of those difficulties. That's what God does. It says endure hardship. God is treating you as sons. don't grin and bear it. But understand, sufferings are not the result of God's. Lack of involvement. They're the evidence of his involvement. The new birth, Peter talks about, brings joy, brings a living hope, and an everlasting inheritance. He ends up saying, those you have not seen him, you love him, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him. and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining as the outcome of your salvation, the salvation of your soul. When Peter talks about salvation, you know what salvation is going to be done? The salvation he talks about, it's something that happens now. You receive it now, but we, don't, we haven't yet experienced it. Here's when, here's when it's going to be completely experienced. Some of us are going to die before Jesus comes, and our body will go into the ground, and our spirit will go up to be with him. And that's what will happen. We will live in a divided way, a body in the ground and a spirit with him. Some of us will remain until Jesus comes and we are body and spirit. So what's going to happen? When Jesus comes a second time, those dead bodies are going to rise and immortal spirits are going to enter into immortal bodies. Jesus exists as an immortal spirit in an immortal body and in the case of sons and daughters who believe in Christ, you are going to live in the same form that Jesus lives in. An eternal spirit in an immortal body. This body will never decay. You won't have to have even preventative screenings. It's eternal. And the thing is, you won't be at war with yourself. I don't think we understand how much of our conflict is due to the fact that part of us has to be rooted in this earth, and part of us is not rooted in this earth. And we are dissonant. There's fighting that occurs within. You're going to find, a hundred years from now, I'm going to talk to you, if I do. I'm not saying I wouldn't talk to you. <laughs> you understand. You understand. I'll even be able to hear you. Now that will be a difference. You know, um, tell me what you're disappointed about. I I can't be disappointed because what I've come to understand I'm at peace for the first time in my life. For the first time, I'm really at peace with. I'm it, I'm in my skin, and I don't need to. Sp- to, to strip my skin off. I'm not at war with myself. I didn't understand how at war with myself I was until I'm no longer at war. Anybody understand that? We are at war with ourselves. And what he does, we're going to be delivered. That's going to happen at that point. It's something we we know it's going to happen now, but we're not going to experience it until then. Uh, Peter closes. and He says, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace That was to be yours. Searched and inquired carefully. When they were writing this stuff, prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, they were writing these things down. They were saying, "What the heck? When's this going to happen?" And you know what they were doing? They were really trying to figure it out. Just I can't. And you know what they were looking for? We live on this side of the message. We can look in our rear-view mirror and see that God loved us enough to redeem us. We can see it in our rear-view mirror. We can see, or not see, we know He rose from the dead. Death cannot hold him, and it cannot hold those who believe in him. That's why the hope of heaven in the New Testament is clear. Jesus brings life and immortality to light. In the Old Testament, the hope of heaven was not clear. It was shadowy. They didn't There was no real compelling faith in heaven because it's not there. Jesus brings life and immortality to light. We're in a pretty good spot, aren't we? Pretty good spot when you think of it. In terms of salvation history, I'd rather live now. To be able to look back on what God did. But there still is a challenge, isn't there? Here's a challenge. When that prophet was writing, he had to wonder what was going to happen. He had to put faith that some future thing, some future Messiah is going to come. And so he lived in the already and not yet. There was a promise, but he couldn't yet see it. Would you agree? Are we not in the same place? We are in the already. You know what he says, and we are in the same place. Jesus is going to come back a second time. It is going to happen. And in that way, we are kind of like the prophets. There's an already to our faith, but there's a not yet, isn't there? But he's going to come back. And that's why Peter writes both to tell them and to tell us. You hang in there. Things are difficult. You feel exiled in some way, disconnected. You won't feel like that a hundred years from now. Don't give up. Let's walk together. You're obtained this outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It's interesting. We did this when we looked at um, Supernatural, and this is Jesus on the Sea of Galilee, when he was in the middle of the boat, and he said, let's get into the boat, and they went out into the lake, and then there was a storm. Um, and here's the deal. Do you know why they're in a storm? It's not because they disobeyed Jesus. It's because they obeyed him. He said, let's get into the boat and go to the other side. Because they obeyed him, they ended up in a storm. Some of you think that you're in a storm because you've disobeyed him. Could it be? It's because you obeyed him. That's the reason you're in the storm. You can be smack dab in the in the middle of God's will and be bailing like crazy. We're going to sing a, um, a song and then let me tell you what's going to happen. We're going to do a final song. I'm going to come back up. We're going to hear very short words from Chuck and Amy and Gabe. We're going to be baptized. I asked them to respond to a question. Why are you being baptized? We had a discussion with them. They had sat down, and had a great time both with, with both sets and know about their faith. They have come to a place of putting their faith in Christ in a personal way. And they're going to talk to us about, this is a public expression. They're not, I don't believe we're going to go into their testimony, tell their whole story. You know, we will have a picnic afterwards. And if you want to know their story a little bit, pull them aside. Great people. So anyway, so that's going to happen. So we'll sing a song. Come on up, Devin. We'll sing, we'll sing a song. I'm going to come back up, have them come up here, give a statement. Then what we're going to do is we're going to walk out that way. And just, it'll be a very short ceremony. We're going to hear a little bit about baptism. Witness them get baptized. We're going to pray, and then we're going to come and eat, and I hope you're able to join us. But let's sing our closing song. Gabe, come on up. Ask them just to respond to a simple question. Come on up, guys. Why are you being baptized? Let me tell you what you're not going to hear. You're not going to hear it because I want to become a member of this church. You know, you don't get baptized in order to join a church. You get baptized to indicate that you are followers of Christ. And and you, Jesus indicated that this is a way to display in a public way a personal commitment of faith. And so that's what you get. Why are you guys being baptized? Come on. We're going to have Amy, then Chuck, then Gabe. Uh, to profess my faith in Jesus. That works. Yeah outward showing of the love that Jesus has given to me. Because, because Jesus gave, or God gave me life. He sent his one son to die for us, and he's the reason I'm here, so why not give your life to him? Amen. That works. <clears throat> Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to... I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to go out 1st we are going to ask you to do Come out with us. We're just going to go, and, and we'll observe this. We'll pat him on the back, and and then, boy, I hope you can stay. It would be fun to sit down and chat. Anyways, let's stand together, and then I'm going to pray for us, and we'll move out first. Then join us. We're right out here. We're not going to go far into the lake. We're going to dip the water. Yeah, At some point, we might re-dunk, but for right now, we're going to pour. The, the water is, yeah, we don't want, anyways, that's fine. Father, thank you for um the opportunity to be born again to a living hope and into an inheritance that can't be sullied by time or anything. It's eternal, kept in heaven, guarded by faith. And so thank you for Chuck and Amy and Gabe and for the faith that brings them to this place. they determination and decision to publicly express that faith. And our hope that you give us is that we will have an eternity to be able to celebrate our being your sons and daughters. Thanks for that, in Jesus' name. Amen.